you have your Bibles, open them up to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. There's a famous photo that was shot in 1936. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's this huge crowd of people, and they're all saluting Adolf Hitler, except for one man. One man refused to join in. He stands there with his arms crossed. He was later identified as August Landmesser. He was a German shipyard worker who wanted to be a loyal citizen, but he had fallen in love with a Jewish woman. At the time, the Nazi government had just passed a law forbidding intermarriage. Tragically, a few years later, the love of his life was killed in the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Whereas Landmesser was pressed into military service, sent to the front lines where he was killed in war. There's a phrase you've probably heard of, you've got to go along to get along. But August Landmesser wouldn't. He couldn't go along with what everyone else was doing. Now, I like to think that I'd be like him. Because Scripture tells us, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. But if I'm honest, I'm not really so sure because when the band plays, when the tubas and the trumpets and the trombones all sound, and it's big trouble if you don't join in, I'm just like you and you're a lot like me and we want to fit in. But when it's bow down or die, what do we do? Stanley Milgram was a psychologist who examined the various justifications that were given after World War II at the Nuremberg trials for the Nazis who had committed atrocities and genocide. He saw how often these individuals said, we're not bad people, we're ordinary people who are just being obedient to the higher authorities. So in the 1960s at Yale University, he set up a now famous experiment to test how far people would go in obeying an instruction if it involved hurting people. Forty people were made to believe by a man in a white coat carrying a clipboard that on the other side of the screen was a man. Really, it was an actor they had met in the waiting room who they saw being strapped into a chair with some wires on him. And they went next door and had a button. And they were to ask several questions. And if the guy who they now couldn't see got an answer wrong, they were to press that button and they were told that that man would receive an electric shock. Now, at first it would be very mild, but it would go up to 300 volts, which is pretty severe. And they had this, this fake box, this kind of instrument in front of them that would have this, this little needle that would go up intensity every time they pressed the button. So, of course, this is just an experiment, and the actor starts giving wrong answers. And just about everyone gives the first couple of light shocks. But if they refuse, the authority figure says, the experiment requires that you continue. And mostly they did. Even if they could hear the person screaming on the other side of the screen. And many of them didn't even hesitate. They showed little reluctance. In fact, Milgram says that they showed extreme willingness, with 65% of them administering the highest shock they could give, 300 volts. And Milgram went on to do 18 of these experiments, and he always got similar results. This wasn't even about peer pressure in the crowd. Just one authority figure. 
but he demonstrated how much people are willing to take orders if they believe they are morally or legally correct and how they'll mistreat others to do so. And this gives us a little insight. It helps us understand a little bit about what's going on in Daniel chapter 3. With your Bibles turned there, we're going to begin reading in Daniel chapter 1. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither, neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods of, or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Daniel chapter 3 follows quickly on the heels of Daniel chapter 2, though we have no way of knowing how much time has elapsed between the two chapters. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says that Daniel 3 took place in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which dates to 587, 586 BC, which is a very important date in biblical history because this is when King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and deported for the third time Jews to Babylon. Now, if you remember in our study of chapter 1 last week, 
we are told that, that God gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams and visions. And in chapter 2, which we're not covering, Daniel actually interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It was a dream of this great statue. And he told Nebuchadnezzar that as the head of gold, he would have an awesome and powerful kingdom. But he was only the head of the statue and not the whole statue. So Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would be one that would not endure. And so as a result of this interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar pays homage and praises Daniel's God. But it's a shallow, it's a superficial praise because it would not last very long. In fact, in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3 that we just read, it seems to suggest that Nebuchadnezzar didn't accept God's will, that he was only the head, that he was only a temporary king because Nebuchadnezzar wanted it all. So the authority figure that we read about in this story is Nebuchadnezzar. He was the most powerful man in the world at the time. He's full of pride, full of puffed up ego. He creates a 90 foot high God that many scholars believe is a statue of himself. It was gold plated from head to toe. It probably looked like a missile on a launching pad. Think the Washington Monument. Our text goes to great lengths to note the idolatrous nature of this image of gold. The word image is used no less than 10 times in this chapter. He wanted everyone to bow down to him. There was no choice. When power becomes tyranny like this, it's never satisfied until everyone bows down. It must have been a magnificent scene gleaming and golden in the sun on this immense plain, in the heat of the Mesopotamian sun. Everyone was told, step up, come out, and bow down, or else. Anyone who refuses, anyone who does not fall in line, anyone who does not obey the orders, forfeits the right to life. Bow or burn, smoking or non-smoking, that's the only choice. Daniel 3, 7 tells us everyone was going along with it. All the Babylonians, all the nations and the peoples of every language. Because after all, these were a tolerant people. Babylon was a multicultural, a multi-religious place now. So this huge crowd, they all worshipped multiple gods. So they agreed that this was a good thing to do. They heard the order. They saw what everyone else was doing, so they came out. They stepped up. They sang along. They bowed down to the statue, the image, the man-made object of worship. Now, on one hand, you might think that this has implications to, to consider about freedom and personal liberty, but, but that's really not what bothered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they realized this was really about worship. Everyone bows down to something. Everybody worships. Sociologically, anthropologically, there has never been a group of people or a place in history that has not had some element of religion. Even atheists make a god of their own intellect by declaring that they know for sure that no other gods exist. So the question is never going to be whether we will worship. The question is what we will worship. So we may not bow down to the statues of the powerful, but what will we devote our attention, our focus, our allegiance, even our love toward? What do we spend our lives pursuing? 
what or who is number one? So while you and I may not be confronted in the precise way that these Hebrew men were, you can be absolutely certain that the idols of this world will present themselves to us. Some may come quietly and without a whole lot of attention. Others, however, will be very public and will be put on display. When that happens, what will we do? What will you do? We may not live in the ancient city of Babylon, but we are exiles in a foreign land that is not our home. And remember, idols can be very seductive. The fact is, many idols are good things when they are viewed properly, when they are used properly. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, then it becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol. And do not doubt and do not be deceived. As the people of God, we will be confronted with the idols of this world. So as we consider worship this morning, I want you to notice, first of all, that people worship what matters most to them. People worship what matters most to them. Now, you may have come into church today singing, God, you are my all in all. I love you, Lord, right? You may be singing that, but, but I would just say, show me your calendar, show me your bank account, show me your passions, and then we'll see what matters most to you. That's what you really worship. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he describes how the downward spiral of sin and corruption spoiling the world has its origin in worship. He writes how humanity looks at the world that God made, and rather than worship him, the creator, they choose to worship the creation. Just like Adam and Eve in the beginning and human history ever since then. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why? There was something that happened. They exchanged the glory of God for images. Images. Idols. Stuff. Things. It could be something made of gold, or it could be money. It could be other humans, relationships, sex, status. It could be pretty much anything. It's the corruption of true worship, the worship of the true God that we were made and meant to enjoy worshiping forever. As G.K. Chesterton said, when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing, but worships everything. Anything we decide or invent can become an idol. But it's important we choose correctly what we worship because of what always happens next. So secondly, people become like what they worship. People become like what they worship. We read in Psalm 115, our God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. We become reflections of what we worship, which is great news if we worship Jesus Christ, but maybe you've heard of the myth of Narcissus who fell in love with his own reflection. The book of Romans says that when we exchange God's glory for images, we are rejecting the real God. You can't do both. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. The real God is holy, 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 as the prophet Isaiah saw and heard the angels declare. 
So it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar in his pride. People make gods in their own image all the time. But the real God is not like us. We are sinful. Sinful people make fake gods like themselves and reject the real God for a little version they're in control of, who we hope will do whatever we want, will keep us safe and well and out of trouble, will keep us happy and popular and successful as we rub their little belly. A little G God who will agree with what we think and what we say, who will never hold us accountable or judge us. But do you know what the real problem with that is? God. God has a problem with that. The true God has a big problem with all the little gods we worship. That's why God put making him number one with no rivals, with no substitutes, the first and second of the Ten Commandments. We read in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. And you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. See, that's why in one sense, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that they had a big problem. Not just because the golden statue was was 10 stories high. Even though they saw everyone else around them bowing down, and they noticed that no one else really had an issue with bowing down. They knew God's commands. That God said you must not bow down to an idol. You must not sacrifice to or or swear by or serve or worship any other God. So they're brought before the king. And the king says to them, have you seen the gold statue I made? Yes, your majesty. Have you heard the music? Have you read the law? Do you see what everyone else is doing? Yes, your majesty. Do you know that everyone, including you, has to bow down? No, your majesty. We can't go along with that. We can't obey that law. We won't bow down. Because we know what the one true God said. And also, by the way, it's just a statue. When the threats came, they were given a chance to change their minds and just do the right thing. You know, go along to get along. They could keep their positions, that they would be safe if they would just go along with what everyone else was doing. But in the moment of crisis, they took a stand. They didn't bow. And the choice they were presented with was was stark. No room for bargaining, begging, compromising, or meeting halfway. It was do or die, bow or burn, death or life. And they chose death, and they stepped closer to the fire. Now, I don't know when or how I might have to make a stand, but I have to put myself in their shoes and ask how. How did they resist in the face of not just peer pressure, but capital punishment? We find the answer in verses 17 and 18. As the king is breathing down his threats on them, we see they knew, they knew their God. And we can learn so much from this, whatever whatever it is we're going through now or in the future. And what they knew in theory was going to be tested in the trial. 
There are some things that we only learn about ourselves when we go through the fire. And there are some things that we only learn about God when the heat is on. The first thing they knew is that the real God is omnipotent. The real God is omnipotent. That, that's a theological word meaning what they said in verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able, he is able to deliver us. He has the power, he has the authority to deliver us. No idols could ever do that. They'll always let us down. They have no real power. Secondly, they knew that the real God is loving. So they trust and they say, he will deliver us. He will deliver us. He's done it before. All of our lives he's been faithful. We're going to trust him somehow to do it again. But even if this isn't how it works out, we can't make the real God do whatever we think is best because we don't even know what's best. And thirdly, they knew that the real God is sovereign. He is large and in charge. He's mightier than any earthly king or earthly ruler. He's bigger than any statue you can bow down to. So what do they say? Even if he does not. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That church is true faith. Mature faith says even if we'll trust his wisdom. I might have God is able faith. I may also have God will save us faith. But do I have even if he does not faith? The Apostle Paul possessed an even if he does not faith. In the book of Philippians, he said in one, chapter 1, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This was the ultimate win-win scenario. If I live, I get Christ. If I die, I get more of Christ. Either way, I win. That kind of perspective sure changes the way we face trials, doesn't it? That way of looking at life and death must have been in the minds of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So at this point, the king is angrier than ever because his authority is being challenged. And so he orders them to be thrown into the furnace. And of course, his servants just go along with it, right? Just doing the right thing. But there's one more thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego discovered that day, which may have only been theory until it was tested. Because when it happened, even the king saw it, and he'd never be the same afterwards. There was another in the fire, walking and talking and meeting there with them. The king himself leaped to his feet in amazement. He asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. Well, uh, there's a problem with that, the king said. First, um, they're still alive, and they're unharmed. They're no longer tied up. They're walking around like it's, a, it's no big deal to be in a, in a fiery furnace. But secondly, and more importantly, there's now four guys walking around in the furnace, and the fourth one looks like one who's a son of the gods. 
Now, later in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar calls that fourth person an angel. That's not a bad guess for a pagan polytheist, right? But we know better, don't we? Some say that this is a theophany, a manifestation of God's presence. Now, I believe it's this, but, but it's more. I believe what we see is what's called a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. The Lord was with them. We can with confidence say that the fourth person in the furnace was the one that we know as Emmanuel, God with us. The God who did not deliver them from the fire was the God who met them in the fire and delivered them out of the fire. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? As, as, as new covenant believers, the promises of an ever-present Savior with his people are a resounding theme throughout Scripture. In Exodus chapter 3, the Lord says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Or what about in Matthew 28, after Jesus has been crucified? He was dead, he was buried, he was raised to life on the third day, and now he gathers with his disciples before he's going to ascend. And he leaves them with what we know as the Great Commission. And I hope you know, church, this is our mission. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. That's our mission, church. At Bachelor Creek, we say we're about making and growing disciples of Jesus. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have commanded you. And you may be sitting there thinking, that seems like a tall order. How am I supposed to do that? How can I have the boldness and the confidence to do what God has asked me to do? Jesus promises us. And surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. He promises us his presence. Romans 8, 37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews 13.5 says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk out of the furnace unharmed, alive, and King Nebuchadnezzar's jaw dropped to the floor. He turned away from his idols. He worshiped the true God, and he commanded everyone in Babylon to do the same. There are some things you may only know about God in theory until you go through the fire. And maybe you read this and you say, why, God? Why, why did you allow this to happen to them? Or, or maybe you're thinking about yourself and you're saying, God, why have you allowed this to happen to me? Why have you allowed this to happen to us and, and my family? God, you, you know that I love you. Why did I have to go through that? 
and then you meet him in the fire. And some of you know that, don't you? He may not have saved you from it, but he's saving you in it. And one of the Bible's most precious promises, God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. But we'll never prove that. It's theory unless it's tested. Until we're tested. When the heat is on, we can find out for real that the real God is able, the real God is loving, and the real God is sovereign. But we also find out whether we see it at the time or we find out about it later, that no matter when, no matter where, no matter what, our God is with us. He's with us. There's another in the fire. His name is Jesus Christ. And maybe we can see him unless the smoke is in our eyes. Maybe the fire will be an illness or depression or anxiety Maybe the threat for us won't necessarily be the loss of our lives, but it could be a loss of popularity. It could be the loss of status, the loss of influence, the loss of a job. The Lord is with us in the fire. He's there. He meets us there when the heat is on. Let's pray together. God, I know I need that promise that you are with us. God, that you never leave us or you forsake us. God, because the temptation is when, when we're in the fire to think that we're all alone, that you don't know what we're going through. Sometimes we think you don't care what we're going through. And God, we may not understand why you allow certain things to happen, but God, you have said whatever we go through, that you are right there with us in the trial, in the fire. And so, God, whatever we may be going through, some of us are in it right now. You may not have saved us from it, but you're saving us in it. You're refining us. You're making us more like you. God, help us to have the perspective of Paul, to say to live as Christ, to die as gain. God, thank you for the example of, of Daniel and for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. God, help us to give you our worship, all of it, for you are worthy. You are above all, worthy of all of our praise, all of the glory. It's yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.